You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. I'm a senior editor with The Diplomat and director of research for Diplomat Risk Intelligence. I'm glad to be joined today by a special guest on the podcast, uh, who's one of the authors on a new policy paper looking at China's growing footprint in Central and Eastern Europe. Joining me today is Ivana Karaskova, one of the authors of this paper. The paper's title is Empty Shall No More, China's Growing Footprint in Central and Eastern Europe. Ivana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ankit, for inviting me. Good morning. It's absolutely my pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to have you on the show to talk about something that we haven't previously covered uh, so Ivana is a China Research Fellow and a Project Coordinator at the Association for International Affairs in Prague in Czechia. And uh, Ivana, before we uh, continue the discussion, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your research interests and how exactly this uh, policy paper project uh, came about. Well, I started to work for the association 13 years ago when I founded three projects which are looking specifically at China. And two of them have been quite active uh, recently. One is called Chinfluence, and it maps Chinese influence in Central Europe. So it's the four countries, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, and uh, Hungary. And the other one is CHOICE, which stands for China Observers in Central and Eastern Europe. And it's built on the idea that actually those countries has a, have choice to either look east or to look west or to look both directions, but at least to be smarter about what they do with China and what they also do with the European Union and with the United States. And this paper came about uh, from the idea that uh, once I started to build a network of choice of, of the observers, we realized quite quickly that there is a lot of things which are um, lots of patterns actually of Chinese behavior, but we didn't see them before because we were too lazy to talk with each other. So we usually meet in uh, Brussels or we meet in Prague or we meet in um, in the US or, or in China occasionally even. But we do not have kind of a sharing information mechanism to let us know each and every one of us in the region what is going on in Prague, what is going on with Chinese activities and influence in the Western Balkans, how is it different or similar to, to the Baltic states and so on. So... We started to think about doing an audit of 17 plus 1 relations to actually look at what is it that China is doing, has been doing for the past eight years in CE region. Because China is a relative newcomer. Um, those traditional powers which are present in our region is, uh, are you know, USSR or currently Russian Federation or um, Germany or the United States, exception of some of the countries of former Yugoslavia. Um, and we were quite surprised of how much established it started to be within those eight years. Mm -hmm. So we started to share information, started to look at what the 17 plus one format actually means, what it does. Um, and we very quickly came into the conclusion that we got it totally wrong from the very beginning. Okay, so before that we, we get before we get too far into um, 17 plus 1 and the format, um, I just thought it'd be useful to actually define that for our listeners uh, because uh, mm. we've talked a little bit about 17 plus 1 previously in the context of China's international diplomacy on this podcast. But I think if you'd like to just tell us a little bit about what that forum exactly is and its origins and how it's evolved, I think that'd be very helpful for our listeners. Well, the formal name of the platform is the platform for cooperation between China and Central and Eastern European countries. And it's a very loose, very weird animal. It's not uh, an organization. It's more like a 
it is formal, but more like a gathering of countries where they meet once a year during the annual summit, either hosted in one of the CEE countries or in China. Uh, it looks like a speed dating. So you have prime ministers of uh, those CEE countries and you have Chinese uh, prime minister Li Keqiang and each have 15 minutes photo op and discussion with Li Keqiang. So that's more or less about it. And the four CEE countries, they've seen the platform as a possibility to attract China's in interest in the region and also investment. For China, it see it, see it um, or saw it or have been seeing it as uh, a platform how to get more into the region, how to um, invest into the region, which is quite close to e even in European Union market or close to Western markets. Um, and how to basically nurture the, in the influence uh, they might have here. Mm -hmm. And so looking at the countries from the CE region that participate in 17 plus 1, I thought one mm -hmm. of the embedded themes in your report that was really interesting to me is um, the differences between how the EU member states and the non-EU member states uh, in the 17 plus 1 uh, grouping of countries interact with China. How do you see those differences uh, playing out in terms of a country's participation uh, in the European Union versus how it interacts with China through this forum? Well, the plat well, I have to say that um, those countries are quite diverse. So their approach towards China and towards European Union is quite different too. So um, it's very incoherent. You have EU member states, 12 of them actually out of 17. You have non-EU member states. You have NATO members, 15 of them. Um, you have non-EU member states, non-NATO member states. You have uh, members of the Eurozone. Once again, non-members, you have members of uh, Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, non-members and so on. So what the only thing they have in common is that they are post-communist countries. And that's the sort of a unifying factor from the Chinese perspective. Of course, there is a lot, there is a lot of identity differences between or among those countries. So some identify themselves as Balkan countries, Baltic countries, uh, or Central European countries. But what is quite interesting in um, this process is that once China started to work with, the, with those countries as a bloc, um, those countries also started to perceive themselves more in line with how China projected them. So they once again started to look at themselves as post-communist countries. Um, it also um, put them into one basket for Western Europe. So usually this, this uh, area, this region is seen as some kind of very proactively searching for Chinese uh, money, sometimes even as a sellout um, to Chinese influence. But as I was saying, there is a vast, vast difference uh, among how China is seen, perceived among those countries and also how those countries react on China. Right. So um, going off of that, maybe let's talk a little bit about um, you mentioned briefly what China sees in this part of Europe. Um, but tell us a little bit more specifically about China's sort of strategic interests in the CE region, because obviously China is looking to trade and expand its diplomatic ties really everywhere in the world. What specifically about CE does China see as strategically useful for its broader geopolitical goals uh, uh, towards the West, uh, towards Europe specifically, um, and also uh, within the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is largely the most important uh, Chinese overarching uh, foreign policy initiative right now? 
It's a lot of questions in one question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, you can break that up a little bit uh, if that's start, helpful. You have to start with the first one. Uh, what What is it that China actually sees in CEE region? Uh, well, um, it, it has a number number of um, like boxes which which ticks Chinese Chinese interest, and one of them is that it's closer to the Western markets. Plus, there is still a cheaper uh, labor. So, if you establish that yourself in CEE countries, be it EU member, then you can have uh, all the advantages of being inside of the European market, uh, common market, and in the same time you have. Um, it costs you less, right? So that's one one of the economic advantages of the region. The second one is that it started to look at the region as um, you know empty region without any contesting powers claiming superiority in it. And it started with the global financial crisis when a lot of Western investors actually left CEE region and China came because it had plenty of money and it was looking for new markets. So there was like merge of interest from CEE countries perspective, which wanted to diversify their trade because all of those countries are heavily dependent on Western markets, especially on Germany. And so they started to look east and China in the same time around 2012 started to look east, uh, sorry, west. So those two merged together. Um, so it's uh, it's a combination of economic interests and combination of geopolitical interests, and also it didn't want to. It was China was playing um, very nuanced game with, with Russia, so it didn't invite the countries which were seen as on the periphery of Russian influence, like Moldova, Ukraine, Belarus. They are not part of seventeen plus one. So China picked countries where it's see it quite. Um, safe to do but as i was saying um they they thought it is basically no one so right. it's quite safe to go to the area yeah so um one of the things that i found interesting reading your report um and also uh, you just mentioned this uh, in our discussion is the post-communist identity of these countries in europe and china sort of using that as a unifying identity uh, when many of these countries are indeed very diverse in their perspectives, uh, certainly on the geopolitics of Eurasia, including their own perspective towards Russia and the United States and Western Europe and even China. Um, but I also found it interesting that the Chinese Communist Party's uh, International Liaison Department, uh, which is quite active uh, globally and certainly in the Asia-Pacific in terms of maintaining party-to-party -party ties on uh, ideologically fraternal parties, other communist parties, is quite active uh, in the CEE region, which is actually something that uh, I personally didn't know a lot about. I was wondering if you could um, just tell our listeners a little bit about what the party-to-party -party, um, relationships are like in this part of Europe uh, with, the, uh, with the CCP. Uh, and just how important the international liaison department-led party-to-party diplomacy is in explaining the story of China in CE. Well, we were, frankly speaking, we were surprised too. As I was saying uh, before, we tended to look at only at annual summits, and we tended to look at investment and promises of investment, which actually never materialized in this region. And we thought it's 17 plus one is an empty shell. It doesn't do anything. But when we started to, de to do the audit, we started to look at all facets of cooperation with China. And we found out that one area which is actually flourishing is party-to-party or people-to-people, -people, more broadly, people-to-people -people relations. There's actually a number of projects, number of programs, which are um, offered by China to CEE countries, um, like uh, China CEE 
youth dialogue, uh, China's CEE party to party dialogue, and so on, uh, Rich for the Future uh, program. Uh, what those programs have in common is that uh, there is not so much information actually known about um, what's, what's going on. There's not known who is participating from the CEE side. Um, it's not known uh, when those projects are uh, or trips organized by China to um, to China, when they are taking place, who is participating, what is in the agenda, whether this has an effect on those people when, when they are coming back, whether they promote more Chinese goals. So a lot of it is very um, non-transparent. Um, so when we started to approach this issue, we started to look at Chinese sources, uh, looked at photographs, for example, which were published in Chinese media and started to identify who were the people actually on the, on the, on the photograph. And the advantage of the choice is that we have um, more than 40 analysts in, in uh, about 14 countries. So we were quite successful in actually uncovering some of, some of the ties. And we were surprised by the scope of um, all these projects and by how much or how less actually uh, is known about uh, all of these. Um, there is a danger of, of uh, non-transparency, of course, and of um, not knowing what this might entail. Um, because China recently has not been targeting only the traditional allies, be it communist parties or leftist parties, but it, it actually reached out to all the parties, so far-right, um, centrist parties, um, basically all parties on the spectrum. Um, so that's one interesting trait, and also it started to reach out to young politicians, so not only established, seasoned politicians, but the future generation of politicians. So it started to look beyond who is currently in the government, and it started to look beyond a current uh, time frame, but projected its power and, and its uh, goals in a longer period. And uh, is that due to a broader um, bid to build political influence in these countries and have a favorable perspective towards China um, obtain over the long term? Is that is that part absolutely. of what's guiding this? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, it might be helpful for our listeners to get a sense of the countries within the CE bloc. I know we don't have the time, unfortunately, to talk about uh, every single one and their relationship with China, uh, nor would I really put you through that gauntlet on a podcast all of a sudden. But uh, I was wondering, um, you know, as, as somebody who um, lives and works in this part of the world and uh, works on this issue specifically, uh, if I just had to ask you, what are the three countries that you think have the most interesting relationship with China in the CE bloc? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm asking that specifically in that way because I don't want you to just tell us about the countries that have the closest relationship to China or are the most skeptical about China. But, but which three countries uh, do you think would be most um, interesting uh, to, to, uh, to share with our listeners uh, in terms of um, their relationship with China? Well, there are countries where actually nothing is happening in terms of China. So, or, or China's, um, um, you know, activities um, or, or relationship with China or not so much is actually happening. And there are countries which uh, update their relationship with China almost on a day-to-day basis. So one of those countries is, of course, Czech Republic, uh, which is a very interesting case and which I would say is by far the most aware of uh, Chinese influence in this region. The other one would be Hungary, of course, for its uh, very interesting re relationship between um, Prime Minister Orban and Xi Jinping. And the last one might be Serbia. But um, there are also other countries like Poland, uh, one of the biggest in, in Central or actually the biggest in Central Europe. 
which um, at the very beginning claimed that it would lead to 17 plus one. So I wouldn't like to just pick some of them, but for the sake of the time, perhaps the Czech Republic might be the most interesting example. Yeah, and um, maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, the elephant in the room that we can't leave out on any podcast these days, which is the global pandemic, uh, and certainly China's reaction uh, in Central and Eastern Europe has been quite interesting, to say the least, where uh, early on, um, as the pandemic was becoming quite clear as a uh, very dangerous development for Europe, particularly after the initial outbreaks in Italy and elsewhere, um, Beijing quite lent, um, lent into the idea of providing aid uh, to many Eastern European countries, including the Czech Republic. We had Czech media reporting uh, in March that um, as many as 80% of the some 300,000 coronavirus tests that had been imported from China uh, weren't working, which I think probably contributed to some of the skepticism that you uh, alluded to about China's influence in the country. But I was wondering more broadly if you could tell us a little bit about how... Um, the Chinese reaction to the pandemic in, in this part of Europe, uh, first of all, has played out and uh, how you think this might affect the broader perspective in many of these countries towards China over the coming years? Hmm. Well, the Czech Republic is a complicated case. You mentioned the uh, dysfunctional uh, coronavirus tests. Um, well, I would put it into broader perspective because there are two streams actually of thinking or two camps. Uh, which um, which I would say cater to the extremes. And one is that um, basically anything coming from China is evil. And the other one is saying that uh, we misperceive China and we um, don't, do not understand China properly and we have to teach China and we have to learn from China even. So it's uh, it's two, two, base, uh, two camps and those camps have been um, quite... Uh, active in Czech media. So on one hand, you have reports about uh, dysfunctional tests. On the other hand, you have uh, reports on how wonderfully China is actually dealing with the pandemics and how grateful the Czech nation is or should be to um, the Czech government, but also to the Chinese supplies and so on. So it's a contested, I would say, bit battlefield um, in, in Czech media. Um, so I wouldn't say that uh, Czech Republic has one unified position on how we perceive uh, China. It's true for the Czech population at large that it is skeptical um, for or over China. It's one of the most skeptical countries uh, on China. And historically, it has been for the past 30 years. So there is nothing, nothing new about that. Um, but it's not quite sure. For, I'm not quite sure for the political elites. Uh, we used to have a government who was very skeptical. Now we have prime minister praising uh, the ambassador of China, who he said two weeks before the start of the pandemics in, in Europe, he said that he wouldn't mind seeing Ambassador Zhang leaving the country. <laughs> he previously said that Ambassador Zhang is a liar. Right. He said it in, in televised, televised broadcasts and so on. And now he is with him in the television praising him for helping Czech Republic. So um, it's, as I was saying, it's updating on everyday basis. Um, every day is quite different uh, now. And we have seen also the return of uh, pro-China proxies um, who previously facilitated the um, CFC company and famous company, which uh, turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. Um, so they facilitated establishment of the headquarters of this company in 2015 in Prague. Uh, then they left from the public side because of the scandal associated with CEFC. Now they are back. Uh, they are helping the government in securing the supplies from China. So 
Um, I wouldn't say that the Czech Republic is as skeptical as by large, that it's by far somehow clear where Czech foreign policy is, is actually leaning or where Czech government is actually leaning. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I just wanted to maybe ask you about another example. Um, so this is, again, sort of relating to the question of the EU's relationship with many of these countries in the in the 17 plus one blog, uh, the member states and um, and the prospective member states of the EU. So uh, Serbian President uh, Alexander Vucic, uh, after after the COVID-19 breakout in Europe on March 15th, said, um, speaking at an event, uh, by now you all understood that European solidarity does not exist. That was a fairy tale on paper. And then he adds, I believe in my brother and friend Xi Jinping, and I believe <laughs> in Chinese help. And this got a lot of media coverage in the United States, and a lot of people who work on, you know, quote, great power competition were sort of citing this as China, um, you know, turning the tables on the West, uh, using the pandemic as a masterstroke of geopolitical uh, ambition. Um, but, you know, in your in your paper, um, and I appreciated this in your paper, that you're sort of skeptical of this idea of China using the 17 plus one forum to sort of divide and conquer uh, the EU or Europe by any means. How do you make sense of this comment uh, by the Serbian president? Well, Vucic is a very interesting uh, case. Um, it's it's one on one hand, I think that he genuinely believes uh, in uh, China being a role model or uh, in his friendship, so-called friendship with Xi Jinping. On the other hand, it's a quite interesting bargaining chip uh, against the European Union and also Russia. So he, I would say, is joining hands uh, with Orban, who played this card even before him. So every time Orban is criticized for authoritarian uh, features of his uh, governance, he says that, well, we have better friends in East. If you don't like us, you meaning Brussels, then we can look at Russia and we can look at China. And Vucic is playing exactly the same same cards uh, with the EU. So after this comment, after him kissing the flag, Chinese national flag, at the airport when the first um, supplies came, um, European Union announced 7.5 million, I hope it's million, a billion uh, euro uh, help to Serbia. Then once again, he said, okay, it's it's fine. Thank you for, for giving it um, this uh, to us. But I still believe in Xi Jinping and the European Union once again opened the pockets um, to Serbia. So uh, we are looking at a country which is not an EU member, which is not a NATO, NATO and will never be a NATO member. We are looking at a country where there is a lot of influence, contested influence from Russia, from China, from Turkey, from Gulf uh, states. Um, so it's quite reasonable or rational, not perhaps reasonable, but rational policy of Serbia to try to extract as much as, as uh, possible. Once you know that you don't, you can't rely on EU structural funds, you EU members and so on. Um, as for the 17 plus one, um, that it's not divide and conquer tactics. Well, China is using the divisions which are already here. Um, it didn't create the divisions. It's using them as any other kind of influence, be it Russian or be it Chinese, is doing. Um, and that's, I think, should be a wake-up call for especially Western European countries, um, that the policy they once had or the rhetorics they once had towards CEE countries perhaps is not that helpful. Um, well, you might remember, Ankit, that there were um, there were a lot of articles actually written and uh, criticizing CE countries, calling them sellouts to Chinese influence and so on for uh, the FDI, which came from China. But when you look at uh, the uh, the data, 
there is it's not uh, based on the evidence it's not supported by evidence um from all of fdi which went to uh, europe only two percent ended in central and eastern europe most of those FD, chinese fdis ended up in uk in france in germany in italy so I don't think that this, this rhetoric actually helped. It uh, angered a lot of um, statesmen in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. So this might be a good. There might be a good idea to actually stop this rhetoric mm -hmm. and start to uh, look at how to bridge the gap between old member states and new member states, and how not to um, help divisions which are then used and abused by other powers. Right. So, uh, Ivana, before we end today's episode, um, we always run out of time to talk about the fascinating topics we cover on this podcast. I wanted to give you an opportunity to um, just um, end this discussion by maybe mentioning something that we haven't yet talked about that you think is important in the context of this discussion about China's relationship with CE. Because uh, I know your paper has a lot of very thoughtful recommendations uh, and, and quite a bit of depth to it. Um, so is there any uh, parting thought that you want to leave us with when it comes to China's relationship with this part of the world? Well, I think that it might be a good time for the CE countries to actually start thinking about what a 17 plus one actually is, because there was not much uh, thinking, not at least strategic one, done on this uh, format. Where China is actually, because China is the driver, so where China is actually driving 17, 17 countries, and why those countries are not interested in, in driving the wheel, steering the wheel themselves. So, well, if the study does anything, I would like to see more of strategic thinking in Central and Eastern Europe, thinking about what the, seven, what the format really is and how we can use it. Great. Well, uh, Ivana, I really want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your day to come join us on the uh, Asia Geopolitics podcast to talk about this um, fascinating and frankly undercovered aspect of China's relationships um, in, in the West, uh, uh, specifically in Central and Eastern Europe. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Ankit, for uh, invitation. It was enjoyable and fun. Great. And uh, for our listeners, I'll make sure I drop a link uh, to uh, Ivana and her colleagues' um, policy paper uh, for those of you that are interested in deeping more dive, um, diving more deeply uh, into uh, this uh, topic. And for uh, listeners of the podcast, make sure you don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a listener for a while but you haven't yet subscribed to the show, you can do that as well on uh Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, any other number of podcast providers out there were quite ubiquitous in that sense. Um, and finally, this episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering this region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.